Well, we commence today's program talking politics with MSNBC analyst, best-selling author, and Washington Bureau Chief for Mother Jones Magazine, David Korn. Before we go full throttle with David, though, earlier today we announced a group of new stations carrying the Tavis Smiley Show, for which I am deeply, deeply grateful. Please allow me a moment to welcome WURD Radio 900 AM, 96.1 FM in Philadelphia, and WVON 1690 AM in Chicago. I do not have a language to tell you how humbled I am to be heard in both the Windy City and the City of Brotherly Love. Uh, In little more than a month of national syndication, our radio show is now heard in three of the nation's top five markets, and trust me, that is no small feat. Our rapid expansion is filling a void for African-American and progressive listeners in a growing number of American cities. Indeed, there are additional networks and other affiliates picking up the Tabby Smiley Show this month, including the We Believe radio network of stations in Mississippi, and we want to welcome all of them as well. Of course, none of this syndication expansion would be possible uh, if my hometown station here in L.A., KBLA Talk 1580, had not first placed its seal of approval on our work and witness, so nothing but love for the KBLA delegation. So, wherever and however you're listening to us or watching us, for that matter, right now, uh, just know that you honor us by tuning in. And so I say once again to all the new affiliates, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, now, a conversation with politics uh, with one of the best analysts in the business, David Korn. David, good to have you on. How are you, sir? Um, great, Tavis. Good to be with you today. Congratulations on those new stations. I know how much that means to people in the radio business. It does indeed mean a great deal uh, to, to expand in the way that we are. And I am, as I said, humbled and grateful for it. And I appreciate your kind words as well and uh, delighted to have you uh, on as our lead guest today when these new cities are now listening to, uh, to this fine program. Uh, again, you see David's face all the time on MSNBC. As I said moments ago, he's the Washington Bureau Chief uh, for Mother Jones Magazine and best-selling author of a, uh, of a, a great text called American Psychosis. Um, let me start with this. There's a lot of political news to get to, as there always is, the first day of the week. Uh, but... Let me start with Nancy Pelosi. There were a lot of people speculating uh, that when Nancy Pelosi agreed to step down as speaker and all three of them stepped down, you you recall the the leadership stepped down, Nancy Pelosi, uh, James Clyburn, Steny Hoyer, they all stepped aside for uh, for some younger uh, leadership in in the House. And there was speculation that once she stepped down, she'd stick around for this one more term, uh, be an advisor and be a a statesman, stateswoman, as it were, uh, and then she'd uh, retire. Nancy Pelosi announced the other day that that she is running for re-election once again uh, in her San Francisco district. Were you expecting that, David? How did you read that? Yeah, I mean, it, it seems that people in power have a hard time giving it up voluntarily. And I don't mean just to, you know, pick on her. We see what's happening with Senator Dianne Feinstein. And, you know, I give Nancy Pelosi a lot of credit for working hard for many years, for getting the Democrats into the majority, being a a very capable House Speaker and dealing with a lot of Republican craziness. She's also raised a ton of money for Democrats across the country. One reason she is very popular within the House Democratic Caucus. So I, I, I really think she's had a tremendously successful political career and that it was great for her to step down and make way for new leadership within the House Democrats. And I think that same principle could apply to her remaining in the House as just a regular congressperson. I mean, there are, there's a lot of people in, 
you know, talented political activists and politicians in the San Francisco area. Many were quite progressive. And I think they deserve a shot at elevation, at running for, you know, a, a spot in the, in the House of Representatives. So I, I, I think for the same reason that she admirably stepped aside to allow Hakeem Jeffries and others to uh, rise up and become this new generation of Democratic leadership in the House, that she could have done the same mm. regarding her congressional position and remain a close and trusted advisor to uh, Democratic leader uh, Jeffries and the Democratic caucus and still use her fundraising network to raise money for the Democrats. I don't think whether she's sitting in the House floor or not, you know, makes a big difference in that in that regard. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'm you know I'm not a, not that young myself, but I do think that there mm-hmm. you know there is an idea that you know people need to open up opportunities for those behind them generationally, particularly if you don't need to keep working to make money for a living. Right. He does not. Yeah. Uh, indeed, she does not. Uh, we, uh, we agree on that score. No question about it. Just getting started in this first hour talking politics with David Korn. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Seeking the truth. The truth. Speaking, Speaking the truth. The truth. This, this is the Tavis Smiley, Smiley Show. Ready to re-examine your assumptions and expand your inventory of ideas? More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Our guest is David Korn. He's the Washington Bureau Chief for Mother Jones Magazine, best-selling author and uh, MSNBC analyst. We're talking politics today in this first hour, and there's a lot to get to. We talked about Nancy Pelosi, in case you've just tuned in. Uh, many thought that she would step aside uh, once she gave up the speakership. She is not. She's running for re-election once again out of her San Francisco district. And uh, you heard David Korn say he, he had hoped that she would do um, gracefully the same thing with her seat that she did with her speakership, and that is step aside and give a new generation a chance to um, uh, to lead. Uh, Nancy Pelosi not yet prepared to do that, and clearly, as David says, she doesn't need the money, uh, but she's sticking around nonetheless. Let me uh, jump from the House to the Senate right quick, because that, that issue, as you know, David, is uh, in play on both sides of the aisle. Pelosi isn't stepping aside. But neither of Mitch McConnell and Dianne Feinstein. Uh, I raise that uh, because there, 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 there's some new data that suggests that most Republicans and Democrats agree that Mitch McConnell's health, we've, we've seen him freeze a number of times now in public, but both the left and the right agree that his health is severely limiting his job abilities. But McConnell has said uh, he will not step down. Dianne Feinstein, now 90, refuses to step down. Why is that news? Because Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, said uh, on Meet the Press uh, that he has no intention of uh, asking her to step down. And if she does, it's her right. It's her choice. Uh, he will not appoint Barbara Lee, uh, the black congresswoman uh, out of Oakland, California, who many uh, had hoped that he would uh, appoint to that seat if, in fact, Dianne Feinstein stepped down. Let me let me just back up for a second. When Kamala Harris becomes a vice president, um, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, once again appoints a Latino named Alex Padilla to fill uh, Kamala's seat. A lot of black folk in California and across the country upset about that. It's hard enough for a black woman to get to the U.S. Senate, uh, and Gavin Newsom did not replace her with another black woman. Barbara Lee could have had that seat uh, if Gavin Newsom had done uh, that, made that decision. Then he did not. He puts a, a male. 
uh, a Latino in that particular seat. Now, uh, Diane Feinstein uh, is in bad health, and many uh, were hoping and thought that Barbara Lee might get the nod. He said this week he will not appoint Barbara Lee, will not appoint Barbara Lee to that seat if, in fact, Diane Feinstein steps down before her term is up next year. So you've got at least two uh, in the Senate uh, who are having great difficulty functioning but they will not step aside as Pelosi will not on the House side. Pelosi seems to be in good health. Uh, her mind is sharp as ever. But on the Senate side, this is a serious issue. And there are a lot of things I could ask, given what I've just laid out, David. But broadly speaking, what's your read on these people who are in who are in ill health but will not step aside to make room for new leadership when in some cases that leadership could be African-American? Well, I do think that Dianne Feinstein should step aside. I think there's been enough reporting indicating that her capabilities are diminished, as one you know might expect at that age. I mean, I think we don't want to be ageist about this, and people at different ages are able to do different things, and some of us are more fortunate to remain uh, able, and bodied and able-minded, uh, into uh, 80s and 90s, and others of us you know, do have diminished capabilities. It does seem that Diane Feinstein is not, you know, faring as well as one would hope and wish for her. And it seems as if it's time for her to leave and give the California you know, voters a, you know, a, a, a representative in the Senate who is up to the task. And, you know, I don't know, you know, why, why she's just hanging on this way, because it just can't end well. It's so much better to go out on your own terms, and she's just not, not doing that. You know, Mitch McConnell is a little bit of a different case in that he's had these moments in the public you know, light in which he has frozen, and it has not been fully explained other than to say it might be the result of, uh, of a concussion he had a few months ago and the after effects of that. Um, it seems to me that the appropriate thing would be to submit him to an independent, you know, medical examination or out neurological examination, and you know, publish to some degree the the findings of, of of that of that exam. But he's not doing that. He's put out a statement from the Senate doctor who says there's nothing that's inhibiting him from doing his job. Although if you freeze in the public. That seems to be somewhat of an indication of a possible problem. But he, too, is not going to step away, it seems. And even if he did, I don't think it would make a big difference in terms of what happens in the Senate. Yep. You'd still have the Republicans led by a conservative who was basically held hostage by Donald Trump and the Trump cult. I guess the question is, uh, just a quick follow-up before I move on, whether or not it's even ageist to ask the question. You mentioned a moment ago that we don't want to be ageist. Indeed, we don't. And I don't think I'm ageist by even asking the question. I, I take you back to one Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, there were those oh, who yeah, said yeah. we were being ageist, uh, trying to push her off the Supreme Court. No, no, no. That was no, never no, the no, argument. Right. That was never the case. Ruth Bader, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, RBG as they call her, I think made a huge mistake by staying on that court when she knew she was in ill health. Barack Obama called her to the White House and tried gingerly to push her. Um, she would hear none of it, and oh, she yeah. and she she fought cancer three or four times. I mean, at some point, we yeah, all no no, we, no 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 no. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm with you 100 percent on that. I think that was a terrible way for her to end her career. She helped give her seat to Donald Trump and the Republicans exactly by hanging on that by hanging on that long. I mean, we see that in a lot of aspects of life. People hang on too long, 
you know, they, they, you know we always talk about boxers losing their 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 reflexes, sure, right? Sure. But 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 when but when it's a Supreme Court justice, particularly, and it leads to a flip of the seat that way, it has ramifications for literally all of us, mm-hmm. for million, hundreds of millions of Americans. That's why I think it's it, it, it is a stain on what would otherwise be a you know the tremendous heroic reputation of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, with in the case of Diane Feinstein and Mitch McConnell, the the the, ramp, the consequences are not as mm-hmm. dramatic. Sure, but I do but I do think you know it, it would send a better message to people if they made room for others and. You know, and said, you know, and said they they couldn't. You know, there's an issue yeah. if they can't fully do their job. Yep. Yeah. But now, is you know, but it, but is it but is it ageist to even ask these questions? No, it's not. No, okay. no, no. You know, as somebody who you know reaching a point where I see some changes in my own abilities, it's not ageist. Mm-hmm. But it's ageist to make an assumption yes. that someone can't do something because of their age. It's not ageist to say. You know, we see what's happening in public. We see you at this stage, and we're asking questions. And you know, voters, you know, they, who basically, you know, the, the bosses of of politicians have the right to be confident that the people they elect and the people that, whose salaries they're paying can do that job. It's not ages if you have someone who works for you who is not showing up or not performing the way you need them to perform if you have a sit down and say can you still do this job so but it's ages to assume they can't so that's the difference here and i think with both mitch mcconnell and diane feinstein they, they've given us reasons legitimate reasons to wonder if they still can do the cha- the task at hand yep let me talk about two other uh, old white guys uh david and i don't mean you david corn i don't mean you <laughs> no, I mean, let me, okay <laughs> Let me talk about two other old white guys, and then we'll we'll, we'll move on. Uh, the first old white guy is a guy named Joseph Biden, uh, and uh, Democrats are expressing uh, extreme frustration with his moribund poll numbers. Uh, what do you make of the fact that for all that he has in fact accomplished, he's back out on the on the trail, of course, uh, gearing up for this uh, presidential e- election season that we're already in the midst of, obviously. Um, but these poll numbers just seem stubborn. They're more bound. They will not move. How do you read that? Yeah, I, I think it's a big problem for Biden and the Democrats. I mean, he's been, I think, more successful than people expected, passing bipartisan legislation to, uh, you know, to get infrastructure, you know, which is really about jobs for people, right? Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act had a lot of pro-jobs stuff in it, too, and a greener economy and and healthcare measures and so on. Um, you know, lowering the price of prescription drugs, particularly in the most popular ones. Uh, it's you know it's done a lot for millions of Americans. You have the Chips Act, which is you know creating you know, the building of computer chips in America. You know we have factories going up throughout the country because of this bill. That again is jobs and helping people with their livelihood. And of course, he's not trying to overthrow the government, impose an authoritarian state mm-hmm. the way that uh, that Donald Trump wants to. And he's been good on climate change, and his appointments have been very solid. If you look at diversity issues, right, uh, Supreme Court and elsewhere. So I think there's a lot for him to celebrate and to brag about. But for some reason, you know, he's just not able to deliver this 
you know, that message or have it be received. You know, the economic numbers are much better now than they were a year ago, but he's not getting credit for that. You know, I don't know whether people are worried about his age or, you know, I think all the, all the, the right wing attacks mm-hmm. uh, about his age and his, well, they, you know, they, they say in one breath he's incompetent, then another breath they say he's corrupt. They don't have evidence <laughs> either. And, but yet they, but they, but yet they're attacking him. And you see some, you know, drops in polls. You see, uh, you know, a, a, a decrease in its support amongst black voters and Latino voters as well, um, for Joe Biden. And, well, you know, I, I guess the question really is, you know, when the choice comes back, if it comes back, to being Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, will these poll numbers at that point, the approval ratings, matter or not? I mean, Donald Trump is still Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And the whole issue of, like, the age, and I mean, Biden's 80, Trump is 77. Like everybody else, I would rather have two younger candidates and move on to the next generation. But if you just look at them, I mean, Biden's doing the job. Mm-hmm. I've seen him on a bicycle. I mean, not to you know, poke fun at Trump, but have you ever seen him on a bicycle? <laughs> he plays golf, he walks, and he's, you know, he does seem to be obese, and I'm not body shaming here, but in terms of health, you know, there's no, there's no reason to believe that Donald Trump is healthier than Joe Biden, and if you listen to his speech patterns, he often says things that don't make sense and then run on sentences, and, um, but the idea that, you know, that's being driven by the, by the right-wing media, that there's somehow Biden has lost a step, but Donald Trump is still in his prime. Yeah. That's just Even, patently absurd. No, it, it, it is absurd. But my, but my, my sense is, though, David, the reason there's such deep frustration um, about Biden's stagnant poll numbers um, is because uh, despite the strength of the economy, as you mentioned it, despite his legislative accomplishments, um, these numbers aren't moving. And that is frustrating because there's going to clearly be, there is right now, an enthusiasm gap. And I guess I guess I guess the question is whether or not a guy who moves the way that Joe Biden moves. I mean, the guy's got arthritis and we know that. But the question is whether or not a guy who moves like Biden moves very slowly, very gingerly, very tepidly, um, whether a guy who talks the way that Biden does and often missteps. And, you know, again, he's not the only one. Trump does some of this as well. But can that guy talking about Biden now, can that guy ever spur enthusiasm? And if he can't, then why is he the guy at the top of the ticket? Because that's the concern. The concern is going to be, as you know, turnout. That's the issue, turnout. And if so, so again, I ask, can that guy well, the, ever spur you know, any kind of enthusiasm? Well, you know, I guess that's the question. I mean, he did in 2020 when he was still old and not, you know, and not you know as vibrant as some other candidates. Right. Um, you know, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was in a wheelchair. And, you know, it was a totally different era then. And, you know, you know, politics is always about the choice. It's not about whether, you know, we rarely get perfect candidates. We, I mean, we never get perfect candidates. Yeah, of course. And so it's one person versus another person. And so, I mean, the enthusiasm as it came in 2020 was not so much for Biden, but it was um, a, a version discussed with Donald Trump that helped drive a lot of that. And that, you know, certainly is, is not going to go away or fade away. Um, but, you know, it, 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 you know, politics, you know, you don't get the choices that you want. And it's a matter of like, okay, is someone going to run against Biden? I mean, is some Democrat going to challenge him and run against him? And at the end of the day, you know, would that person 
do better against Donald Trump if they manage to win, or if they lose, will they end up, you know, hurting um, Joe Biden uh, before uh, his general election fight with Donald Trump or another Republican? I mean, it's it's easy to say, you know, he's not my ideal. I wish he was more energetic. I wish, you know, he's younger. You know, it's easy to say that, but the question then is, okay, then what? The Democratic Party as you know, is barely an organized entity. It's not. It doesn't have the ability to say, you know, we think Biden is too old. Therefore, we think Gavin Newsom yeah. or you know Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan should be the candidate. No, those got, those people have to decide they're going to run against an incumbent president, which almost never works out for the challenger nope. or the party. No, nope, fair so enough. So if, if if Gavin you know, Newsom, your, your government out there decides he's not going to do this. There's nothing that the Democratic Party can do, and voters you know, are left with the choice they have. Nope. I take your point. I take your point. You mentioned Roosevelt a moment ago, and uh, the minute you said his name, my mind went to uh, to Jesse Jackson, who, of course, ran um, admirably in both the 1984 and 1988. And Jesse's had so many great lines in his career. Uh, the Parkinson's uh, that he is now uh, wrestling with is slowing him down. But there's so many great lines in Jesse Jackson's um, storied political career. But one of the best has to be his line that I'd rather have Roosevelt in a wheelchair than Reagan on a horse. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Hope, agency, dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. Can you dig it? Come on! Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. He does indeed. Our guest in this hour is David Korn. He is the um, uh, Washington Bureau Chief for Mother Jones Magazine, which I love to read. Best-selling author of a, a brilliant text called American Psychosis. And, of course, you see him regularly as an analyst uh, on MSNBC. Uh, in case you just tuned in, we started our program today uh, acknowledging some new stations that are carrying this program. Uh, around the country, we are uh, pleased to be on WURD Radio in Philadelphia, WVON in Chicago, uh, um, uh, another great radio network in Mississippi, uh, a network of affiliate stations uh, who are carrying uh, our program there, We Believe Radio. So uh, it's a great day around here on this program, a day of celebration that uh, the program is expanding uh, its listenership a- around the nation uh, in the midst of this critical presidential election season. So there's a day of celebration here in our studio. But uh, but across the country, David, as you know, it's also a day of reflection because the calendar reads 9-11. And so, believe it or not, it was 22 years ago today that we all saw uh, those attacks uh, on our nation in three different places, in Pennsylvania, uh, of course, in Washington, the Pentagon, and, uh, uh, of course, in uh, in New York City. So three different locales. Uh, impacted on this date 22 years ago. There are a number of questions to ask about that, David. Uh, of course, what comes out of that is this U.S.-led uh, global war on terror, which I want to interrogate 22 years later with you. The attacks, of course, killed 200, uh, 2,000, rather, not 200, 2,977 people, almost 3,000 people killed in those attacks 22 years ago. And there's always, of course, um, you know, memorials and celebrations on this day, David, but it's like anything else in history. The farther and farther you get away from it, the less and less impact it has. It occurred to me this morning um, when I was preparing to come on the air today that there's a whole new generation of young folk who weren't even around when this happened 22 years ago. Mm-hmm. So as you look back on it, again, 22 years later, your thoughts, uh, broadly speaking, i got a couple of follow-ups I want to ask, and we'll go from there. Yeah, yeah I mean, 
you know, I, of course, like anyone old enough, I remember to think about where I was that day, which was on Capitol Hill. My office was literally across the, the Senate office buildings, and people poured out into the streets during the chaos, not know, before we knew what had happened. And it turns out that Flight 93, which went down in the field in Pennsylvania, probably was heading towards the U.S. Capitol. And I was on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol. And so... Uh, you know, I quickly helped evacuate my building and then left and got as far from the Capitol as I could because one of the officers told me that they thought the plane was heading towards the uh, towards Capitol Hill. And so on a day like today, I, I reflect very personally on um, Flight 93. Mm-hmm. The passengers and the crew were able to bring that plane down so it didn't hit the target it did. You know, without being overly dramatic about it, my life and the and, and you know, lives of others in Capitol Hill, or maybe wherever that plane was supposed to go, were saved by the heroic actions of these people. So I try to you know think about them and keep them and, and their loved ones and their you know, survivors and relatives in mind on a day like today. But then you know I also think you know that nine eleven just triggered so many bad policy decisions. Mm-hmm. The worst of all, of course, being the invasion of Iraq, which, uh, uh, excuse me, yeah, the invasion of Iraq that had nothing to do with the attack of, of 9-11. Mm-hmm. And we know, I wrote, I wrote a book called Hubos about how Bush, mis, you know, sold the war with lies and false statements about Iraq and WMDs. We all know about that. And we know that we lost several thousand American service men and women in that, in that war, which really, I don't think produced any positive outcomes. But the thing that we also don't I think keep in mind as much is that in the war and the aftermath and the chaos and the civil war that came after the invasion, at least 200,000 Iraqi civilians, I'm not talking about people in the military, but Iraqi civilians were killed in the violence that came, that was unleashed by our invasion um, of, uh, of, of Iraq. So, I mean, these are all connected, and I try to keep this all in mind, and hopefully, you know, we've learned some lessons since then, but um, yeah. maybe not enough. I want I want to focus just a second here on um, this so-called global war on terror that we've been fighting since then. Before I do that, since you mentioned the book that you'd written uh, about George Bush, I love that book, The Lies of George W. Bush. Um, it was a powerful text uh, when it came out, and I think it still is worth looking back on to really get a sense of what happened during that moment. Uh, the book is called uh, The Lies of George W. Bush by, by David Cohen. A couple questions in that regard, one specifically about Bush, but one more broadly about the presidency. The presidency first uh, question first. What do you make of the fact that Bush did, in fact, just flat out lie repeatedly to the American people? And fast forward a number of years in the Trump era, lying to the American people has been normalized, as it were, in the presidency. Yeah. How do you read that? Yeah, well, you mentioned the book I wrote at the beginning of the Iraq War. Um, afterwards, Michael Isagoff and I wrote a book called Hubris, which was focused just on the on the Bush administration's campaign to sell the war and the invasion and support it with false statements and lies. And I think I'm very I'm tremendously proud of that book two decades later. Mm-hmm. It still stands up as, like I think, one of the key texts understanding how we got into that war and how it was an avoidable war and was greased by lies. And unfortunately, even like in 2004, you know, a year after the war began, over 50% of American voters said they believed that Bush had lied the U.S. into the war, but yet Bush still managed to win re-election in 2004 Mm -hmm. 
which I think was a, you know was terrible for the country because it showed there was no price to be paid for what he did, and now he's considered an elder statesman, and people fawn over him for his paintings, and he's never really had to answer for this horrific war that took so many American and Iraqi lives. But you're right, you know, the lies that he did, you know, he, you know, he kind of like, you know, were slippery and, and a lot of spin. Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump, according to the Washington Post, while president, made at least 30,000 false statements or, or lies, <laughs> if you want to call them that. And he still, you know, is was 74 million Americans still vote for him. He lies all the time mm-hmm. about Everything, big issues, small issues, his height, his weight, it just doesn't matter. <laughs> he says the economy was the best economy ever in American history. That's a lie. It's not true. You know, he lies about his COVID response. He lies about his past business successes. And it doesn't matter to his supporters. And the only way I can process that is to sort of say that for for them, Trump has become a theology, a religion. Yeah. People don't question their religious beliefs. You know, it's a matter of faith. You can't, if you're if you're a Muslim, if you're a Christian, if you're Jewish, you can't prove what the Bible or the Quran or the New Testament says that you believe. There's no evidence. There's no record of that. You take it on faith, and you decide to be a believer, and yeah. that's yeah. Fine, but you know that's what faith and religion is all about. It's faith in things un- unseen. But what's happened is with Trump's supporters, a lot of them, not all, but a lot of them, they have taken that same process and applied it to politics and applied it to this failed casino operator who is a, a racist and a misogynist. And they, he can't. He always speaks the truth. Yep. He can't do anything wrong. And there is no, he lost an election, sure. so there was a price to be paid, but he still is at the top of the Republican Party and still the leader of the conservative movement. You, you, you answered the, the first of the two questions I said I wanted to ask. The first was about the presidency and how lying has become normalized when it comes to um, addressing the American people. The second question I want to come to straight away when we come forward, and that's a question specifically about George W. Bush. And you already jumped ahead of me, which is not a problem. You are uh, not just brilliant, but you're a... Uh, uh, you're, you're a psychic as well, because you know what, exactly what I wanted to ask. And it's about George Bush's poll numbers today. Uh, his poll numbers are quite nice uh, in the 60s a day. His approval numbers, number one. Um, to your point, he did all that lying, all those Iraqi lives, innocent lives lost, and yet he got reelected in 2004. Michelle Obama, who sits next to him whenever there's a, a, a meeting, a funeral or something, some state event of all the former presidents because of the order, Michelle Obama ends up sitting next to George W. Bush. And she has said repeatedly, I just love him. That's Michelle Obama. I just love him. What do you make of that? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smart talk for curious people just like you. Just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. My time's getting tight. Let me uh, let me move uh, assiduously and aggressively and quickly to get uh, a couple more responses from David Korn. Um, David, um, George Bush, George W. Bush left office with some of the worst poll numbers ever. In fact, they were the poll, worst poll numbers ever on record for any president departing the White House at the time. I, my, my sense is that some of the way we see George W. Bush in real time, 22 years after 9-11, uh, uh, is uh, the way we see him through, how might I put this, through a revisionist lens, has something, I think, to do with 
Donald Trump coming after him. And so now there's sort of a comparative analysis. And George W. Bush, many of us believe, was nowhere near as bad as Donald Trump. But that doesn't mean that George Bush should get away with what he was not held accountable for. And again, you've got folk, including Michelle Obama, who say, I just love him. I just love him. How do you read that 22 years later? Yeah, well, I, I, I hate to agree with you here, but I agree with you here. Uh, you know, things often look less worse in the rearview mirror. I guess that's why women give childbirth a second time. You forget the pain. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I do think that Donald, you know, I say that as a man, so yes, I, I realize yes, yes, that. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, you know and, and compared to Donald Trump, um, you know, George W. Bush, you know, was... You know, you know, not not as as, as assiduous a liar and and, and a more you know, likable human being, and, but I you know, I do think it's you know part of the problem with America. Gore Vidal, the, the novelist, once said we should be called the United States of Amnesia. Exactly. That we you know we, we we forget the past. We forget the past. Whether it's about Tulsa, and you know we forget the past about Vietnam. We make the same mistakes over and over again, and so it's very hard to keep in mind you know what George. W. Bush did. And speaking of the past, I wanted to say that, you know, uh, tomorrow, uh, the book that you've mentioned, American Psychosis, a historical investigation, how the Republican Party went crazy, uh, comes out in an expanded paperback edition, which means it's cheaper than it used to be. <laughs> and, 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 I, and, the, and the book is a 70-year look at yes. the Republican Party for the last seven decades, has again and again encourage and exploited right-wing extremism and what trump is doing some seems different or feels different or looks different but actually if you go back and look at mccarthyism the southern strategy the new right the religious right the tea party new ginrich sarah palin birtherism you see that it's always been there it's always been part of the republican project yep. and so i wrote this book and as I say, it's coming out tomorrow on Paperback Edition. I wrote this book, American Psychosis, to show people that you got to know the history. To understand today, you got to re- not just know it, but remember it. Yeah. And to me, that's just really important. The book does, in fact, come out tomorrow in paperback. It's called American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. We had David on this program, and the book came out, once again, out tomorrow in paperback uh, on September the 12th. When we come forward, two other things I want to get uh, David's temperature on uh, before I lose him at the top of the hour. Uh, One being the global war on terror uh, and how we're doing in that so-called fight. Um, Secondly, I I have to read this one message from a particular listener and get David's response to the listener. Uh, And um, speaking of George Bush, somebody once said, if you live long enough, you either become the hero or the villain. You're listening to Tavis Smile. Interrogating and unpacking. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. David, i got less than five minutes here, and I want to do two or three things right quick, so let me see if we together can't move through these things. One, uh, I have to read uh, this uh, message to you from a particular listener. Uh, I wonder, Tavis, to what extent, if any, the tepid enthusiasm for Biden has to do with America itself. In response to a highly qualified black male, Obama, America ushered in a wholly incompetent, unqualified, and unabashedly racist Trump. Not only did he not become qualified as a result of being on the job, but he left wholly corrupt. Ours is not the most educated, enlightened, well-read country, Republican, Democrat, or otherwise. So, as I listen to David discuss the list of the Biden administration's accomplishments, I think we live in an America that always wants to be entertained. And Auntie Kamala's hip-hop anniversary party and her dancing to Vibrant Thing ain't enough. America is not given to analysis. 
takes time to read beyond short text and treats life like a movie where now you have to do something sensational at the top to capture the audience's attention at the bottom or they check out and they're on to the next thing. Your response right quick. That guy or that woman should be on the show. <laughs> I think they are. We, we, just, we just put them on the show, yeah. Right, I mean, that's a very astute analysis. I don't disagree with anything there. I think we have a hard time in the country dealing with things that are real, like climate change, and we get distracted by sideshows and carnival barkers, and Trump knows that, and that's how he became president, by making it a, about a reality show, making the presidential campaign a reality show, and that, you know, people, you know, I, I just seen the headlines today, yeah. there are stories about how Biden looked tired on this diplomatic trip he took. But it was 40 hours, and at the end of it, I can tell you, every reporter was tired, Exactly. Too, <laughs> having, having covered these sort of exactly. things. Exactly. So, you know, why focus on that as opposed to what he did or didn't do? Yep. Um, she goes on to say, I wonder if Michelle Obama or Ellen, for that matter, have loved ones or friends who died because of that bogus war that Bush got America into. Privilege has a way of separating people from those living ordinary lives. And to that, I simply say amen. In the two minutes we have left, 22 years after 9 11, uh, your read on how we are doing in this so called global war on terror that we are leading? Well, I, I think it's not a very big part of the narrative these days. I, I think, you know, what we know, we never really figured out what we were doing in Afghanistan, right? We never really knew we were building or helping democracy, whether we could or we couldn't. And it ended up with a very messy ending that I think has, you know, burdened Biden ever since, even though. Trump he sort of set the stage for it, and we've never gotten over that. And so we still, you know, don't really know how to, you know, handle our military commitments overseas. Our budget is military budget is way too big, and we, you know, and, and I think we've just kind of, in some ways, moved on, but allowed a lot of these things to stay in place at high levels of funding, and that's not a good thing. Yeah, um, and whether Republican or Democrat uh, takes the, uh, the the oath of office the next time around, is it your sense that once again we will see the military budget increase as it always does? Oh yeah, it's it's, it's virtually untouchable. I mean, you know, you you can get a nick here or a nick there, but we've never really reassessed how much we're spending or whether we should be spending yeah. all that much. And there are some programs that definitely should be trashed that could save tens of of billions, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars. David Korn is the Washington Bureau Chief for Mother Jones Magazine, one of my favorite um, uh, periodicals to read. Highly recommend it. If you've never checked out Mother Jones, you should. Uh, he is a um, on-air analyst for MSNBC, so you uh, hear his voice today, but you know his face when you see it. Uh, and he's a best-selling author of a book called American Psychosis, A Historical Investigation of How the Republican Party Went Crazy. Love that title, How They Went Crazy. And it releases in paperback tomorrow, Tuesday, September 11th. But today... September the uh, September twelfth. I'm sorry, tomorrow, Tuesday the twelfth. But on today, the 22nd anniversary of 9/11, we say thank you to David Corn for joining this program. David, good to have you on. We'll do it again, my friend. All the best to you. Thank you so much, Tavis.